This episode is sponsored by Interactive Brokers. I want to tell you something. Interactive Brokers has key competitive advantages, and, and they're designed for sophisticated investors like you. Their margin rates are from just uh, 5.83% to 6.83%, and IBKR was rated lowest margin fees by stockbrokers.com. With IBKR, you, you can gain incredible access to over 150 global markets, and that's including stocks and options and futures, currency bonds, the best part, all from one unified, single platform. IBKR has low commissions with no added spreads, ticket charges, platform fees, or account minimums. That's important. Plus, they have award-winning trading platforms across mobile, web, and desktop, and they're loaded with powerful tools to help you succeed. I want you to get started with IBKR today. Go to IBKR.com slash compare and make sure you tell them I sent you. The best informed investors choose Interactive Brokers, member SIPC. The Disciplined Investor is all about you, your money, and the markets. Sit back and get ready for this edition of the Disciplined Investor Podcast. This episode of The Disciplined Investor is sponsored by Horowitz & Company. If you're looking for a portfolio manager, look no further. Horowitz & Company, from seed through harvest, cultivating financial success. CPI picks up, PPI ticks down. Never a dull moment, is there? Earnings season is here. Banks reporting and most well hitting the skids. Bitcoin ETF approved and Bitcoin gets whacked. Holiday shortened week ahead of us. We'll get ready. And our guest today is Vitaly Katzenelson. All this and much more on episode number 851 of the Disciplined Investor Podcast. Hello again, and uh, welcome from the Horowitz & Company Studios. Yeah, we, we have a recording studio here in the office. I built one a number of years ago. It's pretty cool. I remember <laughs> I remember way back in the early days how we had this garage band we set up. You know, that was the way that you would record podcasts back in the days, back in 2007. And uh, it was kind of interesting. It was on my laptop at the time. I had a MacBook, and it did a good job for what it was at the time. And we would do that from an area that was cordoned off in my personal office. And that kind of took up all the space. It was kind of crazy. But now we have a full-blown studio for audio and video here in the office. It's really nice to get in here because it's all soundproof and nice to deal with and easy. And, you know, we have people that can sit here and monitor and watch what's going on from the, you know, the, the engineering side of things. But anyway, thank you for joining me. I'm Andrew Horowitz. Uh, lots of going on some real fascinating things that are going on in the markets right now. Clearly, there is still an undertone of bullish sentiment. You can see that every day that we see these sell-offs, and by the end of the day, those are pretty much taken out, and we move back up. Maybe not to the highs, but significantly moving towards at least stabilization. Nobody seemingly wants to sell after those first two weeks. And a lot of things are going to be happening very soon that will change the dynamic potentially from either dropping and then popping 
and staying pretty much in a neutral territory to either, hey, you know what, we've had enough, or wow, we can't get enough. Either one of those things are going to play out, and we'll see what happens because we do have, you know, the chase for Momo and FOMO and froth going on right now. We saw that so well, I think just just so clearly illustrated with what went on with the Bitcoin ETF approval process. And that can really teach us a lot of lessons how markets operate. That was a compressed situation over a number of months. But if you take that same scenario where you go from the, ah, the blase and who cares to the, hey, I'm interested to fast forward the, oh my God, I got to get in now before something happens to the reality of, okay, it happened. Oh, and then it falls over. Talk about that in a second. But a lot of psychology, behavioral finance lessons can be learned from there. I think it was really interesting. Um, but we do have some bullish sentiment, and we're going into earnings season, so that's going to be something that we're going to talk about as well. So let's let's start with this whole Bitcoin ETF approval process. I am not even going to get into what went on with regard to the Bitcoin oops tweet that came out from the SEC's official accounts last week, which, by the way, if you want my opinion on it, if you're counting, if you care, but who cares? I think it was an actual mistake by the SEC, and they covered up saying there was a compromise hack that we'll never find out about. It was too convenient, too real, too on time to be anything else. It was kind of silly, the whole thing. I think somebody was setting it up to draft it out when they were ready to go the next day. And they, oopsie, oops, push the send button. Oh, boy. No way to retract that, right? That's why they caught on to it so fast. That's why they said, hey, 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 wait, wait, that's no good. That's why they covered up as, as clearly. There's no nothing else you could do. If you said it was a mistake on our part, it went out too early, then you would be sending out the approval signal. So that they just weren't ready for. So they had to come up with some other reason and um, who cares, really, at the end of the day? But let's talk about what happened. I mean, months, months and months and months going into the potential for an approval of a spot Bitcoin ETF. We saw the big moves came. The biggest move came when BlackRock put in their application for the ETF to the SEC. And, and crypto ran and the related stocks really jizzed up. And we saw the approval coming. Potentially, everybody was very excited about it. Then what happened? Then we get the actual approval, momentarily, there's a lot of excitement. People are very excited. Oh, it's here. It's going to be amazing. It's only 21 million, 18 billion out there. In this. Oh, all the talk of, you know, Kathy Wood, it's going to be worth a billion and a half per coin because it has to be by the year 2030 and it's just going to go in the acceptance now and all. In fact, in my opinion, the absolute Bitcoin, um, uh, I would say, purist should hate that we have now standardized Bitcoin as an investment for the masses. That is not what they wanted, right? This It was supposed to be an alternate currency. Now, it's, now it can never really be that. Now it's clearly just an investment, at least in my opinion. So we went through all this and we got the FOMO and the MOMO and we got the psychological you know, breakup of, oh my God, it's going to be great. And then it comes out, we get the approval and then boom, what happens? 
8% down from the highs. Bitcoin sells off dramatically. We see the Coinbase, which is the custodian for the big funds, selling off dramatically. High of 162 on Coinbase, down to about one, what, 32? We're talking about a 30-point move from top to bottom in just a couple of days. And that's pretty interesting. Now, is it going to stay there? It's not the, or what? But my point is, if you understand the trough to the peak and then back to the trough concept from a behavioral finance standpoint, where everybody was getting in because they just couldn't think that it could do anything else but go, you know, right for them, and Bitcoin would constantly go higher. And then you get that sell the news reaction, kind of what you see a lot of times on earnings as well. You know, the workup into earnings like we saw on Friday with the bank news. We saw the Bank of America. We saw um, Citigroup. We saw JP that came out and did pretty well. Wells Fargo. These companies all had a lot. We, we knew this going in. There's going to be a lot of expenditures and write downs of things. Citigroup wrote down big chunk of asset loss from Argentinian peso. We saw also the requirement of um, kickbacks, if you will, to the FDIC for all that happened in March. That was a big strain on the banks. But a lot of that was built in to what we anticipated was going to happen. And banks sold off anyway. I mean, JP Morgan held up a little bit. Citigroup came back a little bit. They pre-announced the day before. So generally speaking, I don't put a lot of credence in what happens with the bank earnings because, to be honest with you, the banks are probably the kings of financial engineering. Very difficult to discern anything about what is actually going on, even from their commentary and outlook, because they can juggle, that's what we use the word, juggle the numbers in all sorts of ways. But I think this quota coming up is going to be pretty important, particularly when we're looking at what's going on with regard to earnings. Earnings season starts uh, pretty much uh, not next week, but the week after is going to be the big you know, kind of uh, the big names start to come out. And I think it's important because we can take a lesson from the news of what happened with Bitcoin and how things pivot and where things might go in the future and wh where things might go with regard to uh, the sell the news concept. Now, I'm not suggesting that's necessarily going to happen across the board, but there's a lot to prove by many companies this particular quarter. And maybe, or maybe not, some of the financials and underlying um, actual numbers will make a difference this time or not. We'll have to see. That's probably why it's probably a good idea for me to shut up right now and start bringing on our guest who really digs down deep into these numbers and looks at the fundamentals and, and the, the benefits of a business over, you know, any of the other things that go on of why I should buy. But let's uh, get right to our guest and uh, spend some time with him talking about um, actually how to value stocks and, and how to buy stocks. And our special guest today is the one and only Vitaly Katzenelson. He is Chief Investment Officer at Investment Management Associates, also known as IMA, which is a value investment firm based in Chicago. No, not Chicago. I'm, what am I thinking? Why am I saying Chicago? It's Denver. I'm thinking cold, I guess, right? Are you That's cold? Right. Uh, Are you yeah. cold? Not really. <laughs> you know, it makes you feel better. I'm cold, but not really. Yeah, it's raining down here. He's also the author of several books on investing and one uh, most recent on the soul. So welcome. How are you, buddy? What's going on? Uh, welcome to the new year. Andrew, uh, happy new year to you. Thank you. Let's talk about the soul because I, I brought that up. And, uh, you know, one of the things he talked about in one of our last discussions was the 
you know, your desire and what you did uh, to to write more about what it's all about, right? You know, so so if you don't know this about Vitaly, uh, this is not the guy that you're going to find at a rave. You know, this is not the guy that's going to be probably in the in 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 the '70s wearing. I'm 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 just trying to envision this, but uh, elephant bottom bottom pants, huckapoo shirts, and slick back hair. This is a guy that really enjoys taking long walks and listening to classical music. Have I got that right? Sure, yeah. absolutely. Did, were you into the disco? Uh, I mean, when I was, I don't know, a teenager probably, but you know, <laughs> I, I much I grew, you know, grew up, grew past so, it, so. grew past it. But the raves, maybe yeah. not. So you yeah. you started, I think, a lot of introspection over the years, probably as we get older, and you wrote this book. Um, tell me about it. Yeah, no, my book is a Soul in the Game, um, and so I've been so I've been writing for twenty years. And when I started writing, I would only write about financial topics. But little by little, I started kind of to, you know, to bring my kids, my family into, into my writing. And what what's interesting is that the feedback I would get from readers, I would write this long article about, I don't know, a stock or something or economy, whatever. And I would just have a few paragraphs about my family. And ninety percent of emails I would get from readers would completely ignore the my financial write up, and comment about the my personal stories and life stories, and that really changed how I write what I write about, and uh, so I started to kind of bring it gave me um, almost a permission if if you would, to write about topics that lay you know kind of the, completely outside of investing, and so over the years I've written a lot of essays on on different topics including philosophy classical music parenting travel etc and uh during the pandemic i had a lot more time on my hands so i decided well, why don't i just take those articles those essays and put them into a book mm. and uh however as i was putting them into the book i ended up writing another half of the book so uh that's kind of how my book soul in the game came about well I mean, I, I've gone through it. It's, 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 it's very, uh, it, what's the right word? It, it, it's, it's motivational. It's, it's, uh, you know, it makes you think. It gives you a, 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 a chance to reflect, right? And, and I think you've done a great job with that. I hope so, yeah. Let's talk about investing because that's what everybody's here to talk about, sir. Sure. And, um, you know, what I know about you and what we've talked about many times over the past is, you know, the idea of, of value investing. And, sure. um, Value investing, it, it, it has a good and a bad history. You know, when you go back to sometimes in the late 90s, value investing was all the rage. And then it got just absolutely obliterated in what, 1998 to 2000, I think. Uh, mm -hmm. Everybody switched ships. They didn't want to deal with anything related to value. As a matter of fact, one of the reasons that we have some of the firms we have today is because of what happened in the late 90s and early 2000s, because everybody was with a Bernstein for a while, which was a value shop back in the day, and they switched mm -hmm. over to the Northern Trust, which was a heavy go-go growth shop. And what happened was people missed out on a lot, both sides. And what they did was Alliance Bernstein is now Alliance Bernstein because Bernstein got together with Alliance, which was a growth position, and Northern Trust picked up somebody. And a few of these other firms did the same thing to kind of get both sides of the equation. But you have stuck with value. But what I want to do and start off the show, once again, for those of you who haven't, uh, listeners who haven't heard about it, what tell me your definition of value investing. 
Well, let me give you two definitions. One is going to be wrong. The like the the definition that everybody kind of familiar with is kind of buying cheap stocks. Okay, mm-hmm. buying something that looks very very cheap, like on the valuation basis. You know, something trades. I don't know, like if you're buying a bank, you know, less than you know, less than a book, or if you're buying a stock, buying it at some six or seven or ten times earnings or something like this. That's kind of that's a that is a kind of a wrong definition of value investing, but mm-hmm. that's the one that everybody is familiar with. Um, the I think value investing is I look at value investing slightly differently than that. I look at it as a philosophy, as a set of principles, which doesn't always mean that you buy something that looks statistically cheap. You can buy something that is undervalued, but it may not look statistically cheap. I'll give you one example. Our biggest holding in our portfolio, and remember, you know, as you call me, I'm a value investor, mm-hmm. is Uber. Really? Uber, does, really? Uber is not a company you would think as a kind of a value investment stock. Not at all. No, and uh, but when we bought it, we basically looked, you know, on the on the at the time we were buying, the company was losing money, and uh, but as we looked five to seven years out, we felt that the company was significantly undervalued because as 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 it get you know as a as its revenue growth grows, it's uh, it's a uh, operating costs will kind of flatline, and it's going to start making a lot of money. So Uber would traditionally be traditionally be a growth stock, and which is fine. It's just a company that's growing you know growing revenues, but uh, that's our largest position. That's pretty, so, that's pretty interesting. Yeah, nobody, I don't think people would think of Uber uh, as a growth stock, as a value stock, especially because when you think, oh, I don't know, when I think of value, I'm thinking of cash cows. I'm thinking about those that have, you know, maybe even dividend paying capabilities, right? Or that, but we're talking about only how, how long ago did they start making money? It was not too long ago. No, yeah, exactly, exactly. So it's a, now, so there is a, there is a saying, there's a lot of value in growth. In other words, when you own a co- when you own a company that's growing earnings at very high rate, and you have a confidence that they can compound this growth at you know for a long period of time, that growth, if the company, uh, if the company is basically earning its cost of capital, can create a lot of value. So you need to buy you know so the so when we were buying Uber, we thought it was undervalued because. Five or seven years out, we thought it could, you know, its earnings could be very, very high. And based on those earnings, we were, you know, the Uber was undervalued. Mm-hmm. So there is, a, I'm trying to make a distinction between cheap and undervalued. Right. Cheap is cheap. cheap cheapness is something you can usually see right in front of you, right? Undervaluation, and sometimes a cheap stock could be undervalued. Sometimes a cheap stock could be overvalued as well, right? Because let's say you buy a company that trades at seven times last year's earnings. Okay, that would be look like a cheap stock. However, if earnings decline by two thirds in two years, right? Mm-hmm. Then you may discover that what you thought was you were paying seven times earnings, you were paying 20 something times yeah, earnings. Right, because the divisor changes. Exactly. Yeah. So I'm, I wanna make this distinction that there is a significant difference between cheapness and undervaluation. So it seems to me so, that there would, there'd be a better way to call what you do 
because if, because if everybody, most people think value versus growth and value is this versus that, it's it's almost like you're you're looking for, um, it, it's opportun- opportunistic. Well, yeah, opportunistic. So so when I so when I started talking about, it, I said margin uh, value investing is a philosophy, and what I mean by the, by this, let me give you a few principles of value investing, so it's going to make sense. Um, well, number one, we already talked about this margin of safety. Mm-hmm. So in other words, when I'm buying something, I want to buy it, buy it at a discount to significant discount to what it's worth. Because if I'm wrong, if I'm wrong on the, what the fair value is or the future is not a bright as I hoped, I still won't lose money. So that's margin of safety. That's a, that's a principle number one. Principle number two, I am looking at these companies I'm buying, not as pieces of paper, but as real businesses. Because Andrew, what happens in the stock market, because you get instant liquidity, a lot of times it turns investors into speculators. Yes. And you buy something, a lot of people buy a stock, they don't even know the what the company does, but the neighbor mentioned it. And they feel fine with it because they can they, they feel like they can sell it tomorrow, right? Yeah. Like, if you are buying a business, like when you buy a business, usually you can flip it two days later, right? So you would be looking, like let's say you're trying to buy a gas station or something, right? You would be looking at the traffic patterns. You'd be looking at how much sales come from uh, from the convenience stores. You know, what's the, where are you buying the gasoline? How much was your gasoline margin? That's how you would be looking at your, what's the cash flows, all these different things. Um, that's how you'll be analyzing, you know, if you're buying a private business. When we buy companies that happen to be publicly traded, our research is not much different as if you were buying a private business. So that's the tenant. So, so what you're doing, so what you're doing is it's, so again, the distinction, I want to make sure I get this distinction right for people to understand. You're buying a business. You're not buying a ratio. That's Right. Yes, I think I'm buying a business. Right, right? You're buying a business. Let's just hold that I'm for I'm buying one. a business. The ratios are just shortcuts that may help me, they, they help you to kind of uh, identify it. Right. But then, I, you know, they say, oh, this the company looks like, company, wait, let's, you know, I just poo-pooed the seven times earnings company, but let's say I look at the company that traded seven times earnings. Mm-hmm. But then, the, this is just kind of, this is just tells me, this may or may not be undervalued. And and then I start doing research, and then I start looking, doing the analysis. Okay, what's gonna you know what's gonna happen to cash flows three, five, ten years out? So the, the, then just I start doing research. Um, the third point, and you kind of alluded to that a little bit. Um, market is there to serve you. And what I mean by this, the stock market. I come to I come to the office every day. And market has an opinion on every single stock I own. Some of them, some of the, some of this opinion is optimistic, and stock price goes higher. Some are pessimistic, but those are just to me those are just opinions, and um, sometimes they get overly excited about those stocks, and I take advantage of that. Sometimes they get you know, kind of very pessimistic, and I take advantage of that as well, but. It's it's the market is not tell, there to tell me what the company is worth. It's just basically just prices them every day. Right. So you have to be opportunistic, and you market should be your slave. You should not be a slave of the market. That's a very important distinction. 
All right, let's take a quick uh, second because I want to talk to you about um, the idea of how do you how do you stay grounded when you have all this excess liquidity, government bailouts, you got this Momo, you got froth, you got FOMO and all that. But uh, I want to talk about interactive brokers first. So hang on, we'll, we'll get right to that. And, and let me tell you something about interactive brokers. In particular, I want to talk about their mutual fund marketplace because this marketplace provides low-cost access to, listen to this, more than 48,000 mutual funds, including over 19,000 no-transaction fee funds. I want to say that again, over 19,000 no-transaction fee funds. With no proprietary funds, the mutual funds marketplace provides access to funds, listen to this, from over 550 third parties, including such prominent funds such as Allianz, BlackRock, Fidelity, Interactive Brokers, and is also Benzinga's pick as the number one best online broker for mutual funds in 2023. Again, learn more at ibkr.com slash funds. So I was, I was, I was teasing the point of, you know, how do you, how do you stay grounded? And you mentioned, you know, you're opportunistic and sometimes you'll cut your pair, you'll add to it. Um, you know, there's only some, sometimes so much room, right? I mean, if you have like an outside position that you want to say, I'm going to have, I'm just picking a number, you know, 5% of my portfolio in that position, that's it. You can't, you have to stop after a while. You can't mm -hmm. add, add to it. But with all that we've seen go on, the excess liquidity, which warps valuations, these days valuations are, uh, the concept of them has been drastically different than let's say what it was a number of years ago. Now, mm -hmm. from time to time, things get wonky. Um, I know that. But we've had all these government bailouts. We have all this, you know, stuff going on. Does that change how you look at companies in terms of valuation? Um, well, first of all, when we do research, we really analyze one one company at a time. And and uh, the interest rates, all they do, you know, just change the cash flows. I mean, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, sorry. The interest rates, all they do, they just change the discount rates. They, right, of the cash flows. Um, yeah, they change the discount rates. And um, when interest rates were low, we kept discount rates the same as they're high. So we just use the same discount rate all the time when we analyze companies because we just, you know, because I'm looking, when we value companies 10, 15, 20 years out, right? And therefore, I assume that, you know, we're going to have high interest rates and low interest rates. And therefore, you know, on average interest rates are going to be, you know, so we use 10% discount rate. So we used it when interest rates were, uh, you know, zero. And when they are, whatever they are today, three or four or 5% depends on the, uh, which interest rate you're looking at. So, um, so that's how I deal with that. But what I think you were alluding to, there's something else going on. There is a lot of noise every single day. Yeah. You come to work and that noise a lot of times, also, all, all, like almost like the the noise wants you to react. Like it's almost like it's trying a, to pull you in. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and it's almost like a, it's almost like you you need to block your ears if you if you let the market in. If you pay it, and if you read, if you watch CNBC all, all day long, um, then it's gonna it's you know then you're gonna stop being an investor and it's gonna make you a trader. I this is why they invented the, golf, by the way. This is the whole reason they invented golf to get you no, that's out. True, that's true. Get I mean, out from watching it. everything every minute to minute. No, absolutely, no, absolutely true. I mean, the you you watching it, they like uh, 
it's kind of interesting. Clients think that you should be sitting in front of a computer, being glued to a computer screen, and watching their portfolio. That is the silliest thing I ever heard. Mm-hmm. Because all it does is gonna it's gonna make it turn. It's gonna make you react. It's gonna make you react. Exactly. And I look at my portfolio once a day. Wow. And uh, and I do this intentionally because, like, you know, there is, you know, if there's one of my companies is down or something significantly, I may, there may be opportunity for me to do something about it, or maybe there's a piece of news that I should, you know, I should, you know, I should, I should pay attention to, but. But you know the price, you know the stock price changes, you know the change throughout the day, and they have absolutely no information, no data, just just a lot of noise. Uh, in, in, instead, what I do, I just read all day long. I I read annual reports, I read you know uh, earnings transcripts, etc. I spend probably I don't know four or five hours a day reading. Mm. Okay, you have and, to in our business. You have yeah, to. and I, you know what I also did. Um, and this is uh, my latest, um, uh, my my latest thing. I have a separate room in this office. Mm-hmm. I call it a cave, and it's very cold. It only has one. Ch- it has a very nice, comfortable chair. It has a blanket, and I bring my iPad and uh, headphones. Oh, uh, wow! Headphones. Wow! And I put my headphones on. I listen to music, and I just read. And uh, there's no computer screens that, like like other than the iPad that doesn't have stock tickers right. or email, etc. Sure. I leave my phone in the other office, and this way I can just focus on reading and and I don't get distracted by the phone, etc. You know where I do that? I do it in I'm my. Ba- I do that. I do that every day, but in a different room. I take my iPad out to my tiki, with my cigar okay. with my cigar at night. Okay. And I read tons of different stuff. Well, that's the benefit of living in Florida because you, you know, I you wasn't saying it to thing. make you jealous. I'm just telling you, I get it. No, no, I, 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 I am jealous. I am jealous because <laughs> I, I call it a cave, and I, and it's and it's a not not warm and it doesn't have a tropical palm trees and stuff. So uh, I'm, uh, I'm 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 jealous. Well, so I I think just to sum up that point that you make there, it's it's about making you know, first of all, not reacting. Uh, but reacting mm-hmm. if it's appropriate, of course, of course, mm-hmm. uh, it's it's getting all the information together. It's it's buying quality companies that you have belief in until such time as they, you know, make you either one not have belief or two you need to make room in your portfolio for something you have a higher conviction in. Absolutely. There's always there's always that right. There's always that list. Like, what's the worst thing in my portfolio? Well, so the so the, every company we own, it's. Um, we have a you know calculate this ratio price to fair value, mm-hmm. and if I have a new idea, hypothetically, it's that I think will generate me fifteen percent a year, and I have a and then I look at this portfolio and I see this company that's not that far from fair value, and maybe it's going to generate me three or four percent a year, mm-hmm. then this would be you know a case where I would sell one to buy another. Right. Um, also, you. You know, not all you know. All ideas work out. That's why you have a diversified portfolio because life happens, and either our research, you know, could have you know, our assumptions could have been wrong, or just life happened. And uh, so you have you bought, we bought a company because of assumptions, and now those assumptions are you know wrong. So we sell it. And uh, but one one thing that's important is that when we sell it, if we don't have anything else to buy that's very attractive, it's just going to sit in cash. Mm-hmm. Because I don't want to, I don't want to be making forced decision, 
or his decisions. So, um, well, but now you, who know, cares? So you like, got 5% of your cash. It's, it's not you know, like, this, still, it's not like the 0% cash days. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It was a lot, you know, it was much easier. You know, it was a opportunity cost was much higher, you know, a few years ago. Yeah. Yes. Right. Uh, but you know, in, in this market today, by the way, Andrew, our new accounts are probably 65% in cash. Wow. And this is not a which market. Means you only have a, which means you only have a 35% idea of what's going on. <laughs> yeah, no, I just, I just have 35% of, uh, I just, you know, have seven or eight great, you know, great stock ideas and everything else is just the market went up so much that I don't have a, enough good ideas. I hear you. And I think that's okay. It happens. Yeah. It happens. Let's talk about some things you talk about at the end of the year. And I read some of the work you did from your various podcasts and your writing and things of that nature. Um, mm -hmm. So you talk about AI. So you get in, you, you, everybody, you have to talk about AI to stay relevant because everybody wants to know about AI, your car talking to you. You say, hey, move my seat up, move my seat back. I'm waiting for the day that the car is pissed off enough that starts just rambling you around in your seat. It's like, enough. I'm not moving the damn seat anymore, you know? Um, and you can see that. That'll be a Saturday Night Live skit, you know? Um, and uh, Or the coffee maker going berserk because you asked for it for darker or lighter or whatever. Um, you mentioned it's AI. Gonna some, it's going to add some randomness to your life. Yeah, okay. yeah. So AI, I mean, the, the big thing, everybody's AI. Everything is your refrigerator, your toilet, you know, your car, um, of course, and, you know, chat GPT and generative um, AI and all the other different things that go along with this. You talked about this. One of the things you focused in on was where are the jobs going and, and how does yeah. this and how does this impact the economy? So why don't we talk about that for a second? Well, so part of me is uh, so some people are really freaking out about AI because, you know, they feel that AI will basically uh, kill a lot of jobs. And and there's it's it's true. I think we, you know a lot of jobs where a lot of tasks that you know kind of where you, people, humans add very little value will get automated away. But you know what's what's interesting about this in 1930s, I think three you know, like uh, one third of the country w uh, worked on the farm, mm -hmm. and then because we had uh, so much automation and tractors and combines etc. Today, I, th I think we only have two or three percent of workers. I mean, two, two or three percent of population works on the farms. So the productivity of farmers increased exponentially. You know, last what 80, 90 years. And uh, so, but we don't have thirty percent unemployment. So, because what happened as, you know, we we created new jobs. The in if you and I took nineteen thirties. You know, and you and you said, you know, I don't know, if some, you know, three or five percent of the country, or whatever the percentage is, will be doing will be uh, software engineers. We wouldn't know what software engineering is then. So my thinking is this: I think AI will will make some jobs obsolete. It will also empower other people to do more, and it will create new jobs that we did not know. Now that it will create a lot of new no. jobs. I mean, look, well. you're talking about you're talking about buggy whip to you know the buggy whips to automobiles, right? That whole concept about where where people were were doing things that that aren't necessary to be done anymore. That's one thing that's absolutely out, right? Receptionist, you know, the person that would use the the multi reception board, um, that's kind of out. We have automated receptions now for the most part, right? It wasn't somebody putting a one of those eighth inch things into you know what I'm talking about the the, the, the pull the line yeah, up, yeah. And, you know, uh, may I help you? 
Uh, so, um, but that's one thing, right? Copy clerks, you know, what we don't need a copy clerk. Oh, like, do you know what I was thinking about Mad Men? And I remember like, you know, like when you see movies. Copy about, boy, copy boy. Yeah, yeah, well, now <laughs> Americans 1960s, where you you had rooms, usually a women typing. Yeah, the typing pool. And then, and then yeah, yeah. yeah and, and then and then you have a and then now you have a you know just a fax machine whatever. Well, everybody learned to whatever. type. I mean, back in the day, nobody had to, men didn't know how to type. You know, no, 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 men wouldn't. Back in high school, there was typing class. No guys were ever in the typing class ever. You know, we were hunting pecs. Yeah. And then we would have the typing pool. You'd hand over something handwritten um, or dictated, for that matter, on some kind of cassette. And then the typing pool would do a regular piece of paper, put a piece of um, the black carbon paper behind it and then put like an onion skin behind that. So you'd get that for your file. So it was thin and they would send that off. And if they made a mistake, they'd have to use the whiteout. Yeah. Remember that? Well, it's, we went from calculators <laughs> to Excel spreadsheets, right? right? No, right. I mean, so the, the, but, 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 but can I just interrupt you for one second on this? Yeah. But you know what, what I thought was the power of going from calculators to Excel spreadsheets was that you mm. knew how to do the basic math and understanding the fundamentals behind it and then utilizing Excel to to not only automate, to make it more much more powerful. Do we think, though, that, that kind of skill set is going to go away? Yeah, no, so this is a great point. And I, I, I wrote about this and I talked to my kids about this and this is something that really, you know, kind of, I'm, con- I'm concerned about some things. Um, it's a, let's, let's talk about your example, but then we'll talk about another example. Um, it's, I think it's important for you to know how to, you know, to actually know how to multiply and add in your head. You know, not five-digit numbers, but simple stuff. Um, and when you use calculator all the time, you kind of start losing that, that skill. And so that's the danger kind of of Excel calculators in general, because you forget, you, you know, like, if, you know, you don't want, you want to, I want my kids to know how to multiply and how to add. So they, they can double check if, you know, or at least they know if the number they get from calculator is vaguely right. The, what really worries me about this uh, AI today is that we'll forget how to write. And I think there's a um, and, um and I think there is a lot of value in writing. And again, this is, you're talking to a person who writes two hours a day, every single day. Mm-hmm. And I think in the, the process of sitting down and writing is a, it's a writing, what it really is, it's a focused thinking. And if we stop writing, if we just gonna write uh, a sentence and say, uh, if my if my kids start writing that, you know, college admission essays by basically saying, hey, hey, GPT, write me college admission essay and give certain parameters, then they'll forget how to write. And I think that's a skill that's very, very important. And that's something that does worry me. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'm, I encourage your listeners to this podcast not to get lazy and keep writing. Yeah. And you still use ChatGPT to check your grammar, et cetera. You know, and that's, you know, and uh, one thing actually, I, I can actually went the other way. I use ChatGPT to help me write, but by giving me writing prompts, mm. I- You ask a question? You know, I, yeah, no, I said, you know, uh, you know, I actually, this is, this true story. I would go ChatGPT and say, say, I say, this is Vitalik, it's a Nelson. And, and it happens to know who I am. And I, and I say, I'm going to, interview him 
What questions should I right. ask him? How would you, would you believe, would you be surprised if every single question I asked you today was not from Shappy GPT? I would not be surprised, <laughs> I but no, if, not true. That's, not true. That I expect <laughs> even more. No, but it's, you know, but that's a, but that's a, you know, that's, and I think that's important. Like that's a, so now AI is making you think more, right? So AI could be your friend, but you have good friends and bad friends. So make sure, make sure it becomes a good friend, not a bad friend. Well, the other problem is you just regurgitation. Uh, that's my only concern about the, the various, you know, uh, uh, AIs. If you if, if you say, hey, uh, I want to do a podcast on investing, give me some questions and some things to say. And then somebody else says it and they think they could do a podcast because now all you have is ChatGPT doing a podcast. So it would be better having just the AI podcast. Maybe we should do that. The AI investing podcast. <laughs> it's it's going to be just two AIs talking to each yeah, other. Exactly. Just yeah, exactly. Just let them go after, after each other. Yeah. You know? Yeah, Nassim Talib called the gentleman of ChatGPT self-licking lollipop. Yeah, exactly. Right. It's, it's like self-cannibalism. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Because it's all it is just looking through huge amount of data that has been generated by humans pre-ChatGPT, right? But as we start generating more and more data, you know, through ChatGPT, now it just starts analyzing the data it's generated. Right. And humans' contribution to that Generation of new data declines over time. I mean, but the problem is, Talib may say it's 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 a self licking lollipop. But at the same time, you know, you got to look at maybe some of the efficiencies, which would be the opposite of this. Would be the combination sushi restaurant and bait shop. Mm. You know what I mean? Once the sushi goes bad, you put it over the bait shop and you send it out that way. So you know, you can there could be some efficiencies uh, of of that kind of situation. But let's get you back. You know, Andrew, I just I'll be honest. Like the only person who could come up with this analogy is you because you. <laughs> <laughs> because you fish <laughs> I never thought about this but it's yeah it's a great idea uh, let's talk about um, getting past AI you also wrote about something that is actually of interest to me More, well everything's of interest to me but this is really of interest to me because I have been for a while for our clients for our uh, global allocations um, and our and diversified uh, portfolios we have been focused on the last couple of years commodities and specifically on gold and silver which worked out nicely okay but uh, that was only because I extracted that out of the commodity position we would utilize for a portfolio and didn't really want to have energy in there because of concerns about, you know, a lot of things that were going on with regard to uh, inflation, possibility of peak oil concept with, you know, oil not being, at least not being utilized as much due to, you know, EVs, et cetera, um, and, and all the things we saw with natural gas and blah, blah, blah. Uh, well, just recently we made the decision, which we, which we, had been thinking about for a while to switch back to a diversified commodity pool for that portion of the portfolio versus a focus in on precious metals. Now, where does that, all of that, what, what does all that lead up to the question? It leads up to your discussion back in late 2023, where you were coming up with the decision or discussion of, Hey, let's take a look at energy stocks because this is part and parcel to my thinking here that maybe some of the doldrums of some of the energy could be dissipating. Yeah, no, so the, yeah, the, so the, there was an article in Wall Street Journal yesterday how ESG is becoming a bad word now again. It is, it was always a I bad mean, word. Well, it was, it was, it was well, always it was, a bad it word. It was From always the day a bad I heard it, it was, I was like, what are you kidding me? Yeah, but now it's, <laughs> so I'm glad it's a, you know, finally it's a, like, <laughs> Yes. Um, it's like SPAC. So, it um, belongs in the same place as SPAC. 
Oh, absolutely. Um, okay, so if you think about it, let's, let's just talk about energy. Like, let's talk about oil, for instance, okay? So the price of oil is basically, you know, they said by supply and demand, right? So the let's, if, let's start with demand first. The demand for oil is only likely going to rise over the next five or 10 years. And the reason for that, because the incremental demand is coming from emerging markets. The, you know, the population is growing. And uh, electric cars, and I have two of them, they are, yes, the, you know, you know, they produce, you know, they consume electricity, not, you know, which could be generated from petrochemicals, but it could also be generated from other sources. Um, and a lot of times it's a, you know, it could be coal generated, it could be nuclear energy or whatever. Um, but even if you, even if 100% of electricity for electric cars came from non-petrochemicals, electric cars today constitute a very relatively small part of new sales. That's important mm -hmm. because I, I've, I'm going to butcher the numbers, but I think there's about 150 million cars in the United States. Um, and, uh, we sell about, uh, yeah, no, that's about right. The 180 million cars in the United States, we sell about 15, 18 million new cars a year. And only less than a million of them are, you know, are in the United States are electric cars. Mm -hmm. So in other words, from if you look at the total car park out of 180 million cars, electric cars are just a tiny little number. And uh, it's going to take a long time before you know, the electric, you know, the kind of, before they contribute a lo very large portion of the, you know, they, they will become a large part of the, of the fleet. Right. In the, in the meantime, transportation is about roughly about half of all petrochemical consumptions. We use it in plastics. We use it in many other places. Um, so demand for oil has been increasing over the years and it continued to increase for, for a while. Now, where supply was, that's, that hasn't been the case with supply. Supply, um, like, uh, so the, if you look, you know, before the pandemic, uh, oil prices were low for a while. Pandemic, you know, <laughs> made them go negative for a little bit. Oh, that was something. Uh, that was fun. Yeah, yeah, that, that was crazy. Um, and uh, so now, if you, if, you, if you look, you know, if you look at the, uh, there, there's a saying in commodities or, you know, high, you know, solution for low prices are high prices. Well, solution for, you know, so we had a very low price for a long time and therefore a lot of investment, you know, very little investment went into looking for new oil fields. In addition to that, the politicians decided they want to hate oil companies. So they, the regulation for oil companies got worse. Also, they now they decided they want to, Tax access, what we call windfall profits, when oil prices are high. So, but but not Apple's iPhone windfall profits, by the way. Just I'm sorry, but not Apple's windfall profits on the iPhone. Yeah, no, that's fine. Yeah, <laughs> when, yeah, that's, yeah, when Apple makes, you know, um, so the and so what's happening is that the oil companies, if you listen to conference calls, they all talk about this, how they're maybe making invest, investments in small oil fields, but they're not committing billions of dollars to where they're taking a lot of risk because you know, they, you know, they, run, they run their models and they basically say, okay, yes, if oil prices go up, the government 
will limit how much money we can make from that. So why would we, uh, we, we you know, be better off just in uh, returning money to shareholders? And so you have that. Plus you have ESG. And ESG basically kind of made another reason, you know, they made uh, all companies evil. Yeah, bad, so bad. Oil, now, oil, oil bad. Yeah, Andrew, let's say you have a daughter. And this daughter, you know, the, she, she brings her fiance. And this fiance says, yeah, I'm starting to become an oil engineer, right? Like, <laughs> like maybe 15, years ago. You can't, marry that, ago, you can't is, marry that guy. You can't marry this guy, right? Well, so you know what's happening? The enrollment for uh, petrochemical majors in, in American universities has declined tremendously. So, and so therefore, you're going to have a lot fewer people in that industry. And uh, so all this, if you combine all these things together, the supply is likely going to be constrained going forward. So what do we do? How do we invest? Let's kind of, let's well, I think just, I think it's a, well, I think, you know, the way we invest in, we buy, you know, we, have, we own all companies, we own all companies, we own companies, natural, you know, that produce oil or natural gas. What, 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 but are you in the, you in the, what, what, what side of it? Are you on the refining side? Where, where are you? Are you in the distribution well, side? Uh, You're to, the, to, give me today, one, you, one name. Give me one name. Um, beyond a, what's sure, uh, beyond a Blackstone Minerals, mm -hmm. which is a company that, uh, they, one actually the largest mineral rights owner in the United States, which is good. They get royalties on whoever's on their land. Yeah, so they yes, the all companies drill on their land, and they collect you know, and for every barrel of oil or natural gas uh, or, or or natural gas, they get twenty five percent of the of the revenues. Nice. So and this is this is crazy. This company has fifty people working for it. And it's a multi-billion well, company. But they don't need anybody working for that. Only the exactly. squatters. I, I would argue they have 49 too many. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You just got to buy the piece of property and just have somebody do billing. Yeah, billing that, collections. That's, <laughs> you know? that's exactly right. So <laughs> that's that's kind of, you know, and these guys, you know, for them, two-thirds of the revenues comes from natural gas, which is very interesting. And natural gas has its own interesting component added to it because unlike oil, which is easy to, like, which is, you know, it's a easy to transport. Mm -hmm. Natural gas has limitations, right? Right. So Europe, European natural gas, a big chunk of it came from Russia. Well, because of sanctions on Russia, Europe is delinking itself, or it delinked itself, especially Germany, from Russian natural gas. United States has a lot of natural gas, but to, train, to get it to the United States, we need to, uh, we need to basically ship it to them. So the way we do this is you go, you, know, you do it through LNG. So you basically liquefy it, put it on ships, and, and send to the United States. Well, it takes a few years to build those LNG facilities. Mm -hmm. So right now we're producing a lot of natural gas, but there is l less demand for that because we, when you know, the LNG facilities are not, not, you know, not finished yet. Right. So, but in 24, 25, you know, this year, next year, you're going to have a lot more LNG facilities coming online. And what's going to happen is that the LNG, you know, the natural gas prices in Europe are much, much higher than they are in the United States. So, so once the ports it, can open, hopefully even with the transportation fee, it will be lowered down. They're going to exactly. have lower, lower costs. And the LNG is a, I mean, that, that's also 
one of those things that is on the wish list of everybody that it's going to happen one day. And there is some problems with transportation, of course. We know that there is some issues that have happened in the past and the fact that there hasn't been any ports available to take these in. That was a problem for a while, you know, so but that's so all changing. Just a, yeah, well, so Europe has an incentive to, you know, to build ports on their side. Yeah, but they're not the smartest people. They don't want to but, that, but they're not the smartest people in the world over there, it seems. Nothing personal. Well, I mean, I think you become, when you, when you, when you, when you, you become a lot more pragmatic when, when you don't want to freeze anymore. Exactly. When you want to freeze. Right. Exactly. When you don't want to pay uh, uh, five times or 10 times more for electricity than you paid right. in the past. We got to end it. I got to end it here because we are running out of time, my man. We could talk for hours, you and I. And we have Absolutely. when we took our long walks on the beach. I don't know when you're coming down again. But that was uh, a lot of fun with you and your son that time when we did the uh, Miami Beach Absolutely. Walk. It was really, I really enjoyed it. Yeah. Very good. And listen, the great Vitaly Katzenelson, uh, of course, you can find information on him on the website of The Discipline Investor, uh, episode number 851, I believe it is, uh, that you can go over there at thedisciplineinvestor.com. You can also go to um, directly, where, where would you, where's, where's the best yeah, link? Yeah, just very simple, investor.fm, like, in, like investor, like uh, FM radio, investor.fm. There you go. That's it. I love it. Thank you so much. Andrew, it's my pleasure. Thanks. Thank you. And once again, thanks to Vitaly Katzenelson for great insight. You know what I, what I really think that um, I take away from this discussion with Vitaly is thinking more about the idea of what am I buying? Am I buying a stock? Am I buying a price? Am I buying a trend line? Or am I buying a business? Now, depending on what kind of investor you are, that will all change your, your thinking, right, of, of what, well, what do I want to do? Some people may be like, bah humbug, I'm just going for price. That's all I want. I don't want to deal with anything else. Other people are like, you know what? I'm a long-term investor. I want quality. I want to buy the thing that makes sense. I'm going to stick with the business. I'm going to grow with the business, and, and I'm going to be a part of the business. And then again, some people may say, uh, I don't know about that. You know, it's all about sector rotation on a regular basis. But the point is that, that all these things that we look at and all these types of investment processes are important to understand and have in your arsenal because we need to understand these. And if we don't know what we don't know, how do we know? Think about that for a second, if you can untwist that a little bit. Anyway, thank you for joining me today. Thank you for joining me each and every week. Next week, I believe is, I think it's Danielle DiMartino Booth is next week. We're going to talk up to her as a Fed insider about what is going on and lots uh, more guests booked out for months to be honest with you, that are really exciting. So I'm excited. I hope you are as well. Going to be some great things coming up. Thanks for joining this week. Thank you for joining me every week. I'll see you again soon. Nothing discussed in this podcast should be considered a recommendation to buy or sell any security. Past performance is no indication of future results. In addition, the information presented is not intended to be used as a sole basis of any investment decisions, nor should be construed as advice designed to meet the individual needs of any particular investor. Nothing herein constitutes legal, accounting, or tax advice, or individually tailored investment advice. Remember, investing involves substantial risk. Past performance is not a guarantee of future results, and a loss of original capital may occur. No one receiving or accessing this information should make any investment decision without first consulting his or her own personal financial advisor and conducting his or her own research and due diligence, including carefully reviewing any applicable prospectuses, press releases, reports, and other public filings of the issuer of any securities being considered. Please consider this for educational purposes only 
As always, use your best judgment when investing. Horowitz & Company, Inc. is registered as an investment advisor with the state of Florida and conducts business in other states where it is properly registered or is excluded from registration requirements. Registration does not imply any level of skill or training. Advertisements are not related to the host or affiliates and are not considered recommendations by the host of the show or any affiliates of Horowitz & Company.